Hey, this is Big Rev. Thanks for tuning in to Masterclass Theology, a weekly podcast where we study books of the Bible a verse at a time and apply it to our lives. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Let's rock. Well, hello, this welcome to Masterclass Theology. As always, I am Big Rev. And I'm Professor D. And I am Crockpot. We are in session seven of our 10 session Isaiah series, and we have the honor of being in chapter 43 tonight. We're going to do things just a little bit different tonight. Usually, listeners, you're expecting me, Big Rev, to be interviewing the people, the, the different characters on this show and getting their Bible knowledge and interacting with that. We're going to do something slightly different where we're going to be interviewing each other. So for those of you who are brand new to this, to this channel and to this podcast, I invite you to go back and listen to the rest of the Isaiah series. And if you like it so much, go back. There's some good series we've done so far. I highly recommend uh, the, the Joseph series and, and others are really great. So anyway, let me open with a, with a brief word of prayer, and then we will journey forth in Isaiah 43. God, we thank you for this text. We thank you for this opportunity to, 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 to go through your word and, to, and to, to, to trust you as we do so. I'm so grateful for John and for Mick and for their, their wisdom and for what they have uh, to teach us tonight. And we are so grateful, God, that you are a good and faithful God and that you have plans for our lives and that we can trust you. And this whole journey in Isaiah has, has reminded us, Lord, that even though our times are tough, that you are a God who brings hope and you bring solutions and either we're trusting you or we're not trusting you. And so, God, we're just so grateful for tonight. We pray all this in Jesus name. Amen. 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 All right, so I will I will be directing traffic. Listener, you may be a little bit confused at time. That's okay. Uh, so we'll we'll have different people asking different questions along the way, but I'll, I'll I'll direct the traffic here. So our first section is going to be verses one to seven, and so how the format's going to go is I will read the text, and then uh, Mick will take the first question of, of, of John. John will be explaining the text, and then Mick Mick and I will uh, will each ask a question in that turn. So we'll start with one to seven, but now says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy one of Israel, your savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Sheba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Wow. That, that's great. So we'll start with the crockpot. John, will you give us an explanation of verses 1 to 7? So teach us from this word, please. Will do. And I'll try to do so in a way that I just explain everything and don't leave any room for any questions to be asked. So uh, <laughs> sorry to disappoint. Here we go. So Isaiah 42, uh, the last part of that chapter, I think it's like 18 to 26, was like this very honest indictment of where Israel had gone wrong spiritually by straying from God and failing to heed his warnings to repent of their evil ways. And how God, as a result of all that, 
he uh, he punished Israel by actually handing them over to their enemies. Okay, so that's where we're at coming into chapter forty-three, and as we start this chapter, we're on, we're in a very different tone here. We can see how Isaiah has kind of balanced this section of the book, where he offers both these honest judgments of Israel's failings and, on the other hand, these very hopeful messages, where he assures Israel that all is not lost and God is not by any means done with them. So it's, it's truth and grace, right? It's a, and it's a perfect balance of both and you need both. Otherwise you have no justice and you have no hope. But now thus says the Lord, chapter 43, verse one, who created you, O Jacob, and formed you, O Israel? Fear not for I have redeemed you and called you by name and you are mine. So we've been conditioned to believe those words, you are mine, are oppressive today because the, they suggest ownership or possession. And we want to be completely free by nature, right? Not owned by anyone. But I'm telling you, there's nothing more liberating than for the kind and loving and just God of the universe to kick you out and say, you are mine. Those are words of comfort. Because if you're not his, you're completely helpless and without hope. And that's what Isaiah is getting at here in these opening verses, the incredible unmatched hope that comes from being God's, belonging to him. No matter the adversity you come up against in this life, he will provide and he'll deliver you. And remember, remember, this is addressed to old covenant Jews. At, so at this point in history, they're the ones to whom God is saying, you are mine. I will protect you always to such an extent that I will purchase you with these other nations, Egypt and Cush, two of Israel's historic enemies. I will trade them for you, verses three to four. And then he goes on to describe this dispersion of people scattered across nations, but united by a single spiritual identity, that they are precious in God's sight. And because of that, he will stop at nothing to unite them from the far reaches of the earth that they're scattered across. All right. Well, thank you, John. And Mick, yeah. Mick, you get the first question here. Yeah. So basically, you know, we, well, we do call ourselves masterclass theology. So I'm going to go a little deep here, Johnny. Um, Please. Genesis 1, 1, the first thing that God reveals to, to us about himself is not that he's love. It's not even that he's just or merciful or, or triune. The first thing that God reveals to us is that, that he, about himself is that he is the creator and as I'm looking here, you know, you're starting with 43.1, where he talks about, you know, Israel, I created you. You know, here in verse 7, it states that, that the purpose for God creating his chosen people is for his glory. Mm -hmm. Do you think that essential, that this essentially is the purpose of all scripture and, and creation and the theme of God's glory? Do I think it is? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And I... um. Yeah, just just to add on to that, um, so I love the I love the Exodus narrative, and especially mm -hmm. the first fifteen chapters of Exodus, which is kind of the it's the God versus Pharaoh story, mm -hmm. or the God versus Egypt, and how does that how does that whole section end? If you look at I think it's Exodus fourteen four, and it says basically everything everything that God had done up to that point in punishing Egypt exactly the way He did, and it's this very progressive, slow like drawn out punishment right it's it unfolds in stages that are increasingly devastating and exodus 14 4 says and when all when the egyptians like rushed into the sea and this, this punishment comes to a head and it culminates in their deaths all this happened 
Why? So that this is God speaking so that they will know that I am Yahweh. Yeah. Because earlier in the story, um, when, when Moses had first approached Pharaoh and was like, Hey, let my people go. Um, God said so, right? Pharaoh's response is, why should I? I don't know who God is. Who is God? Who is Yahweh that I would do that? And then it finally, it comes back around and says, all this happened against Egypt and Pharaoh. Why? So that, so that he will know who I am. Yeah. So yeah, totally, Mick. It's always, that's always the, the end goal, the, the underlying purpose behind everything that, that God does yeah. for his own glory and, and revelation. You know, and this is a slight uh, lateral pass to Joel. It's like, you know, as I'm looking at how you broke up the sections that you gave us, I'm like looking at one begins with the creation of Israel and seven ends with with with, uh, with glory and creation. And I'm like, was this intentional, Joel, when you did that? Hmm. The world will never know. <laughs> Just say yes. Of course. I am that kind of genius, Mick. I yeah. Every, every time anybody points out, hey, something you did is amazing. Oh, really? I mean, yes, that's great. Yeah. Now, a great opening question, Mick. And so one of the themes I see, John, and I'm going to ask you kind of a crockpot style question Perfect. because you are you are running in the history lane in Masterclass Theology here, and you're doing it very well. A couple of times in this opening section, he links not fearing with mm. I am with you. So what is it about, you know, with us as God, Emmanuel, what is it about Emmanuel? And, and feel free to tie this wherever you like with, 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 with the Emmanuel <laughs> issue, with, with, especially in Isaiah. But, but yeah, so what is it about God being yeah. with us that now God expects us not to fear? What, so right. help, help us with this link here in these first seven verses. Let me, let me tie it back again to Exodus, if I may. <laughs> Uh, because again, that, that there's a, a perfect there's a perfect connection there. Uh, Exodus three, when when God appears to Moses and gives him his charge, you're going to be the one to deliver the people, the Israelites out of Egypt. And Moses says, "Who am I that I should be the one to lead these people?" And mm -hmm. God's response, God goes, "Well, you're Moses. You know, you're you were you were raised a proud Egyptian son. You speak three languages. You have all these credit." No, that's not what he, that's not his answer, right? Moses says, who am I that I should lead these people? And God's response is, I will be with you. Mm. And that is so beautiful and so revealing. It has, it has nothing to do with who Moses is. It doesn't matter who you are. Why? Because I will be with you. Yahweh will be with you. So yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a heck of a theme that we see, um, especially in the Old Testament. And, and it's cool to see it given a name in the book of Isaiah. Emmanuel, God with us. Um, yeah. you, you, we've seen it um, played out, you know, in action several times in the Old Testament up to this point. God is attending His people. He's there. He's the pillar of fire that that follows them and delivers them. Now, now we have a name for it. Um, I'm not sure exactly what your question was about it, Joel, but um, I'm here to say <laughs> it is such a, a cool and profound theme that we really see. And yeah, we have no no need to no need to fear and no, because yeah it's it's really easy to uh try to do things in our own strength and forget that we are attended by the almighty and um I, I believe there's an appropriate time for fear and anxiety and worry but it's also really easy to forget who god is and i like how you tied it back to the exodus because 
you can very easily take a look at this entire chapter and just call it a new exodus. Like there's there's something about it this is. chapter. He's he he he's, like the, the text is intentional about the exodus theme. Yep. So you taking it back to the burning bush and Moses is not is not inappropriate at all. Well, thank you, John. Uh, so we now continue with four, with uh, eight to thirteen, and we'll read here. Oh, I just realized I didn't scroll down far enough. You listener, you have no idea what I'm talking about here, but all right. Bring out the people who are blind yet have eyes, who are deaf yet have ears. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right. Let them hear and say it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servants whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you. And you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. And henceforth, I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? So, Professor D, we go to you now. Would you give us uh, your, your, your explanation from 8 to 13, please? Sure thing, Big Rev. So, Isaiah is a book that you really have to uh, keep track of the shifts in who is speaking and who is being spoken to or about in order to properly understand what is being said. You, you can't afford to blink when you're reading this book and you really have to concentrate very, very mucho. So I'll give you a, for instance here, in the previous chapter 42, which we didn't do in the series, but you know, the reader can go back and, and, and look at it. The, it talks about the blind with eyes and the deaf with the ears. And it's speaking about Israel in chapter 42. Yet here, it's not speaking about Israel. It's speaking about the goy the goyim, the, the nations, the Gentiles, and, uh, you know, the surrounding nations. And, and I know it can be tricky. Again, you can't blink here. So what, what I, that's, that's just the way Isaiah rolls. So God is essentially saying, okay, nations, show me what you've got, to which, of course, they, they've got nothing to show for. And then in verse 10, God calls Israel his witness and servant. Now, now I have to mention here, Israel being a servant here, uh, this could, this can produce a lot of confusion later in this book without spoiling too much of what's coming up ahead in this series, but we have to pay attention. But in this particular context, Israel is a servant. And, but I but I will point this out again. You you have to pay close attention to to the most immediate context. And, and again, like I said earlier, the the blind and deaf of this chapter are not the blind and deaf of forty two. Now it's the Gentiles. Before it was, and, and it, this happens throughout the book of Isaiah. So it is with this the servant. Uh, the servant here being Israel, uh, and again, not necessarily later in the book. So in verse 11, God is affirming that he is Israel's God, covenant God and makes it clear that he's the only nominee candidate that can actually fit that bill. And along with him, alone being God, the other thing being said here is that he alone is the Savior. And, and this is huge because it is an all-important insight as to the savior seed of, of Genesis 3.15, who is clearly a man in Genesis 3.15. So this is another development clue as to that man, that he has to be more than just an ordinary man. He has to be an extraordinary man, and, and he's going to be basically God and man. But wait, it doesn't stop there. 
in verse 13, he reiterates, he, he stresses the assuredness of, of salvation. There is none who can deliver from my hands. And in other words, not only does God alone save, no one, no one can be snatched from his hands. Like, like he says, who can turn it back? With the answer being an obvious nobody. And, and I mean, what, what can feel hope more than God's continual assurances as, as he keeps doing it chapter after chapter in this book? All right. Well, thank you, Professor D. And I will take the first question and John will take the second. So Mick, my question for you is this. If you are just going to use verses 8 to 13 and only verses 8 to 13, how sovereign is God? Oh, he's very sovereign. I mean, just even even just those last couple of verses that, that I was stressing right off the bat, you know? Let me just uh, scroll to my, since we all use digital Bibles these days, you know, you know, I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. I mean, he's making it clear there. Nice. John, your question. Yeah, Mick, um, God refers to his people as as his witnesses uh mm -hmm. twice it is verses 10 and 12 what good is it being a witness if uh if you're not proclaiming what you know and see to be true and then that's a big part of why they're under judgment isn't it they you know you did, and i'm going to take this back to genesis chapter 12 when god is talking to abraham you know he has always intended for them to be a light in the in the nation i mean he says so in in the book of isaiah you are a light to the gentiles and, but that's one thing that Israel always failed in fulfilling that because they they never got their their house in order, so to speak. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, thank you, John, for verses 1 to 7 and Mick for verses 8 to 13. And let's now read verses 14 to 21. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans and the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise, they are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I have formed, from, formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. Well, guys, I'll, ta I'll take the explanation of this one and then... Uh, John will question me then, Mick. All right, so it, it, this is kind of like the new Exodus section where, where God is bringing up uh, terms that are very, very Exodus sounding and, you know, right away. But the, what I, the big takeaway for me out of this section is, is just the names where God is describing himself as the redeemer. This is the Hebrew word goel. We first saw this word, uh, well, it's, it's in the Torah with, you know, the the avenger of blood, but it's also Boaz in the Ruth story, the kinsman redeemer, the one who is going 
to save Naomi and Ruth by purchasing Mahlon's land. And that, that individual that a family could depend upon, that's who God's saying he is. He's a redeemer. He's going to purchase them back from this exile and this slavery they're in. He's going to redeem them. He is their holy one. This, this God of ours, this God of theirs, is separate, unique. He's not like any other pantheon. It just continuing the themes that, that Crockpot and Professor D have given us from this text already. And he is king. As their king, he is like their father. As their king, he is their leader. He's the one they turn to. Now, who's Judah? He calls them my people. He calls them my chosen. He says, they are formed for myself. And why does he do anything here? Because he loves them. And so we have this idea of, you know, throughout, throughout this section, we've, we've got, you know, images of the Red Sea, where the Red Sea would be in the Exodus story became a path for Israel and became a grave for Pharaoh and, and his soldiers. Mm -hmm. And we have mm -hmm. this idea of, of don't look backward anymore, instead look forward. We get the idea here that, that Israel was seeing some of these Exodus themes played out. Here they are again, slaves. They are in exile. And maybe they're going to say, I know how God's going to rescue me. God's going to, I don't know, would it be the Tigris and Euphrates or something? He's going to cause them to dry up and we're going to cross them on dry ground. And here's what God's going to do. He's going to raise up somebody from over there like he did with Moses in Egypt. And that's a, and God's saying, no, don't look back. I'm going to do something new. You're going to see exactly what I'm going to do. And it's going to be amazing. So look forward, look forward to what I'm going to do. And, and then he kind of, he, he kind of gives us this idea of, in, in verse 19, uh, he's going to do a new thing. I'll make a way on the wilderness, rivers in the desert. The wild beast will honor me. It kind of takes us back to chapter 11, where the creation is going to be changed in a bit in this messianic kingdom. So not only is this looking at Judah's future back then, this is looking at the future, even for us, that God is even going to take care of these uh, creepy crawlies out there in the wilderness, because he wants to take care of his people as they journey in the wilderness. And so there's hope here for God's people in this new Exodus. And with that, I, I pause. So we'll start with uh, John. You've got the first question of me. Yeah, Joel, I was wondering if you could maybe just say a few more words on the subject of, of wilderness and wildlife. It seems like, seems like God, I don't know, has like a special relationship with wilderness and the things of the wild. And I was just wondering if you could maybe touch on that a little bit, especially considering like how how unwild and how quote unquote civilized humanity has become. And are you talking from this section here or in general? I'm talking in, well, both, I suppose. So I was just noticing the, the lots of language about what God, what God is doing in the wilderness and then the imagery of all the, the wildlife and um, yeah, here, I guess this is just a, a great example of how God works in a seemingly special way in the wilderness. That's a fascinating question. I, I, I haven't given much thought to it, but, but, but here's, here's, here's what jumps to my mind. Um, you might call the, the Exodus story as it unfolds, where if you look at Mount Sinai, let me see if I get my, my, my narrative straight here. If you look at Mount Sinai, when the law is finally given as kind of like the marriage ceremony, 
like a covenant, like a marriage covenant between God and Israel. If, if you were to view God's relationship with Israel and the giving of the law, the giving of the covenant and the people ratifying and saying, yes, we will follow. Okay, when you know Moses kind of says, okay, she, she, I she set before you life and death. Now the blessings and curses now choose life. And they all said, yes. Okay, so if you, if you view that as the wedding, then you would have to view the wilderness wanderings as the honeymoon phase. Like the, the opening time of, of, of God being with his people in this relationship as he is their husband, as it were. And then, so you, we, so God, God made it so that they traveled in, like that was the next stage of, they weren't just going to go right to the promised land. And you can call that re, a result of their disobedience, whatever, but it was God's sovereign plan for them to travel in that wilderness. So God, God met with them. God provided all their needs, their shoes did didn't wear out all those things and god took care of them in that wilderness he didn't take care of them in the promised land he guided them to the promised land but they had to go through 40 years of questioning and following a cloud and, and yeah. following a pillar and they couldn't look back to where the cloud was or, or try to guess where it was going but they had to follow whenever the cloud moved mm -hmm. and so god has a special relationship a relationship that was tested and proven in that wilderness and so every time God's going to make a mention of that wilderness, even to John the Baptist being a voice calling out of that wilderness, John the Baptist wasn't in, you know, downtown Jerusalem. He wasn't hanging with the Sadducees. He was out there and they had to come to him. And you look at like, I don't know, um, the day of atonement. Where did they send the scapegoat? They cast him into the wilderness. They brought that sin there. So God has this special relationship with this wilderness where the place where people don't want to go. And the place that people think is just nothing to write home about. There's nothing there. No, that's where God meets his people. That's where God has led his people. And honestly, the, the jackals and the wild ostriches or the owls and all these creatures out there that have no other business, God even cares for them. And God's going to provide for them. And God's going to lead his people, even if it has to be through another wilderness. And we might look at our life today as if we look at our exodus and we're following, I don't know, Yeshua, our Joshua, uh, to, to a new promised land, you might say. Some of us might feel like we're in that wilderness and, but we're not going to, we're, we're going to trust our God. Is that, is that an answer? That's, that's really good. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Joel. That was just kind of the big rev, kind of the hamster jumping on the wheel for a second. And just, and uh, yeah. All right, Mick. All right. Well, here goes big rev. I think this is in your, in your, your, your toy box, you know, in verse 18, God instructs Israel, remember not the former things yet throughout scripture, a constant of God's is actually to tell Israel to remember what he has done in the past, especially with the events in Exodus. Um, how would you reconcile this or, or better yet? What is the greater point that God is making in, in saying that? Hmm. Yeah, I think the great temptation here is for, for someone reading God's promises and we, we see this happen with people who, who look back at yesteryear, who remember maybe the, the, how life was when they were kids or whatever. Oh, I would give anything to have that time period again. And life was so easy and perfect back then. Well, it wasn't, but it's just your perception of it was. Uh, I think this is like saying to God, you know, God, I really wish, I wish God was like he was back then. I wish God would handle his business. It'd be kind of like when we struggle today and uh, we, we don't have the Jesus of the gospels doing things exactly like the Jesus of the gospels did. And we're, we're wondering, why am I suffering right now? I don't have Jesus to, to literally heal my broken arm or whatever it is. I wish I had that Jesus, not this current thing I've got here. I wish God was like 
in our situation the way he was in the Exodus situation. He's talking all this about the Exodus. I wish God was like then, now. And God is reminding them, hey, you can remember, but the, the, the longing for the past is not going to produce the faith in the present that is going to be the faith that God is going to appreciate and God is going to, is going to honor God. If all I am is looking in the past, and because essentially what that is, Mick, is saying, God, if you don't do it the way you did it before, you're really not enough for me because what I'm going through right now is too much. And I think it reveals that I don't exactly trust God right now because God is not marching to my drum. And so God right away is telling them, it goes back to the wilderness wanderings again, uh, Crockpot. It's like what, what I mentioned in my answer to you, they had to follow the cloud and they couldn't move until the cloud moves. So they couldn't leave and go back to, hey, he was just over here in this spot, four miles that way. Let's go back to what works over there because that's where God was before. We got to go back there. No, that's some churches do this all the time where they, they go back to the past and do things like they used to do. Or we're not going to guess ahead and go over here. Where, where's God going to go next? No, we're not going to just stay in the past. We're not going to try to guess in the future. We're just going to follow where God leads. And so the more we focus on the past, so I guess to answer your question, Mick, and I don't think, I don't think I'm doing an adequate job on the second part of your question, but to reconcile it is that, yes, the, as God has worked in the past, that should form the basis of our faith. What God has done, what God has accomplished, we rest upon that. And that becomes something we can now build upon. If it's a building that's like the foundation of our building, the basement of our building, and now the present is like the first floors we're building here. So based upon the foundation of God's faithfulness, we now live. But we can't go back in time and say, God, you got to do it the same way. And I'm expecting you to do it the same way, rather than God's going to do something a different way. And God and God's still going to be faithful. So we can remember the past. We can, we can rejoice over God's faithfulness. But we're not in control of this. And so God is telling us to... To, to pay attention and that, that he's going to do something amazing and new. Yeah, sort of basically saying, uh, remember the past, just don't live in it, right? And don't worship it. Yeah. I mean, at some point, it's like, I'm just going to fondly remember the past to the point that God must act that way or I won't be satisfied. And yeah. that's just not a great spot to be in with God. All right, yeah. well, thank you guys. You, you, you held my feet to the fire on that one. <laughs> All right, so the, the, next, the next couple of sections are smaller in nature and I will not be asking questions here. Uh, 22 to 24, if you just pardon me, I was busy answering questions here. I didn't scroll down. Pardon me, pardon me. All right, 22 to 24, it reads, Yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. You have not brought me sweet cane with money, bought me sweet cane with money, pardon, or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. So, John, if you'll explain this and then make you get the question. Okay, so remember the balance I mentioned in the last section, the grace and truth going back and forth between statements indicting Israel and statements encouraging Israel? So we're now back to indictment. We started with encouragement and we're back. You may also remember all the way, all the way back in episode one of this series, we were talking Isaiah one. And you remember Judah's spiritual status at that point? I'll read, uh, I'll read Isaiah 1, 11 to remind you. It, it says, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of lambs or bulls or goats. 
So here we are in Isaiah 43, and we've come right back to that same place, essentially. God saying, look, Israel, you showed your true colors and your disdain for me, your weariness of me in your attempt to appease me with these empty and, and meaningless rituals. Did they make their sacrifices? Well, yeah, obviously they did, as indicated in chapter one. They were, that wasn't the problem. They were following, they were, they were, they were taking the steps, you know, doing the rituals, but did, the, did those rituals and sacrifice, sacrifices mean anything really? Clearly not. They were empty. They were wearisome to God. And because they were so empty and devoid of any kind of heartfelt, genuine worship and repentance and love of God, those sacrifices were completely useless to have their sins atoned for. And so at the end of the day, you have all these meaningless sacrifices, all these dead animals at the altar, this wasted blood, and a mountain of unforgiven sins, which are really all they're doing is weighing on God's heart. They're a burden to him. And now make with our question for John. Yeah, you know, it's it's just um it's just too funny because that's exactly what I was gonna ask him. And he answered the question before I asked the question. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm gonna read straight up what I got here. It's like, especially in light of the accusations from God in lesson one in Isaiah drum roll, 11 through 14, one through 14. So it's like he he essentially answered the question. Yeah, it's like you're bringing it, but it's like you're not really bringing it because you're really not doing this with the right yeah. heart you're essentially doing this with the wrong heart you're doing this with the wrong attitude you're doing this with the wrong mindset you're doing this in the wrong spirit mm -hmm. and, and yeah you just answered it. so thanks johnny way ahead of you mick <laughs> just here to help uh, i was gonna say great minds think alike but yeah that works too <laughs> amen all right we'll continue on to 25 to 28 i i am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us argue together. Set forth your case that you may be proved right. Your first father sinned, and your mediators transgressed against me. Therefore, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling. Wow. So, Mick, if, you, if you'll give us the explanation here, and, and John will get the question. All right, well, here we go. Like, like in verse uh, 11 earlier, God starts off with this double, you know, I, you know, declaration. And, and, and what, what he starts off saying here is that I, I, God, I am the one who blots out sins and, and he does it for reasons uh, all his own, my own sake, he says there, uh, there in verse 25. This goes hand in hand with, with the concept, with the with notion that, that God is, is God and no one else is qualified in telling God how to go about doing his business. Um, and, and I love God's description of what blotting out sins looks like. I will not remember your sins. That's what it means. When I blot out your sins, I will not remember them. Now, clearly God doesn't forget things. It's just the fact is he is not going to bring it back up again. And, and it's a beautiful picture uh, as, as well as a great object lesson for us you know, for how thorough forgiveness needs to be with each other, with one another, you know, um, as Jesus, Jesus puts it later in, in the Lord's model prayer, forgive us as we forgive others, you know, and, and it's just really beautiful. So, but God goes on to remind Israel how even from the beginning with, with the patriarchs, sin had been an issue. 
And while this could be Abraham, after, after, I mean, after all, Abraham did have snafus along the way, you know, the relationship with the concubine. Um, yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, you know, uh, Sarah, I'm, I'll, I'll sleep with your concubine. Okay. You know, you know, to, to, to lying about Sarah being his sister to, to bury his kings instead of his wife. And, and so, but I still don't think it's really talking about Abraham so much because overall, when Abraham is spoken throughout about throughout in scripture, he's generally placed like in a very, very prominent, positive light, uh, father of faith, um, you know, Abraham's bosom in the New Testament, uh, a friend of God, to, to name a few of those, those kind of things that Abraham usually has going for him. I, I think that this first forefather that it's talking about in, in verse 27 is probably more that rascally, you know, scoundrel Jacob. Um, regardless if whoever of the whichever one of the patriarchs it is it's almost never isaac isaac almost never gets called for anything i almost feel sorry for him um but i i think it's jacob and, and you know but regardless this is essentially an all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of god even from abraham but especially jacob onward you know moses and aaron failed god the judges failed god the kings including david and solomon you know the golden era of israel failed God. And, and especially those afterwards, they all failed and, and sinned. You know, in his righteousness, God God still had to deal with all that sin. And while this chapter sort of ends kind of like, a, am going to call it like the umpire strikes backwards, seems like it ends on a, on a cliffhanger, bad note, or, or the Avengers endgame, or whatever, you know, where all of it looks bleak, we know that around the corner, God's going to show us how, how he's going to fix all this. And, and John with our question. Yeah. yeah, that's good, Nick. Thank you. Uh, so my question is, uh, this is uh, verse 27. Your first father sinned and your mediators trans transgressed against me. You're listing off all, all the, all the, uh, the like spiritual office holders, basically, who, who have <laughs> botched things. Yeah. And I just wanted to yeah, add to that list, the mediators. Um, so does does God with us, does Emmanuel do anything to correct this problem, the problem of deficient mediators or priests? Absolutely, because he's the only one that 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 will be sinless in all of this. I think that's that's the whole thing that he's saying there. Your father's first father, second father, third father, you could have go, gone on with that list, but he's making his from the start, basically, he's saying everybody has sinned. And there's gonna be the one. And kind of to the, the section that I had earlier, where he talks about that extraordinary man that has to come. All right. Good job, gentlemen. We, we made it to the end of our, this, this leg of the journey. And I wanted to close with uh, just, just a hope from this text. And the, the, way, the way I see the hope unfolding is this text does you know, appear to be a, 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 another exodus and an exodus away from uh, exile and slavery, as it were, in, in Babylon. So I see two words that, that begin with the letter F here. And the first one is, is form. This idea that I have formed you. And looking at this word in the Old Testament, it could mean I have fashioned you. 
So it, it, it's like a pottery word, or it could be like a metallurgy word, like if you're a metal metalworking word. So you could form like a like a, a pot, a, a, like a pot and from like a clay pot or something where you have to first bend it and shape it. And then you put it in some kind of a kiln and it goes through the heat and it is now hardened and finished. Or it could be the similar process of, of making armory or something with metal. You can form metal into it. Uh, craftsmanship, that kind of stuff. And it goes through a similar process where the heat and is, is something that is, is aiding in the strengthening of that. And so this idea that God has formed them, I have formed you. And, and he's linking that to his relationship with them. And, and forming could also mean, uh, it could mean fashion, it could mean plan, and it could also mean intent. There's something about God's glory in this passage. And many people might ask, well, gosh, you know, why, why do bad things have to happen? Why, why did, he, did he kick Adam and Eve out of the garden? I mean, is sin that big of a, why couldn't he just have created them not to be able to sin? But catch this, in this grand narrative of God, he, at the end of the day, gets glory. And because this is the path that God has chosen, he gets the most possible glory in leading us through our wildernesses and ransoming us from our situations, our messes, and yes, even our sins. And God intended this journey. We can't get around that. The sovereign decree of God has, has unfolded. And so now God gets the greatest possible glory in bringing his children back from the north, south, east, and west. As he calls his sons and daughters home, he who formed them also intended for them and now planned for them. And that gives us great hope as we go through our messes as we ponder where's God at in our journeys, as we are in our wildernesses, to use Crockpot's question from earlier, as we are in the wilderness wanderings of our life right now, where all we can do is follow the cloud, all we can do is just trust God, that's it. And the second word that begins with F is fear. This very idea of not fearing. And my earlier question to, to Crockpot reminded me of what I wanted to talk about at the end. Yeah, the very presence of God means not to fear. And so we get this first idea, this brief idea of Emmanuel in chapter 7, where, where God, or in Isaiah chapter 7, it's, it's, in, it's in verse 2 here. It says, when the house of David was told Syria is in, is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of the people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. So Ahaz and Judah were in an impossible situation. We remember that story. And listener, if you need to recall Isaiah 7, we handled that a few sessions ago. But they were afraid. They were full of fear. And God's answer to that fear was the Emmanuel prophecy. There was something about God being with them that was supposed to solve that fear. Or even if not solve it, provide an answer for that fear. Provide an outlet for that fear. Why do I read? Why did I read the verse I read? Because Ahaz which would be the last king we talked about, his dad, Hezekiah's dad. Ahaz was called House of David. David was the greatest example of this because David wrote Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear. Why? Emmanuel, for thou art with me. He gave the template. He gave the example for all of his sons to follow, no matter how long those sons were going to be. Fear. We don't have to fear because God is with us. For David, that was enough. 
God presented it as a sign to Ahaz to be enough. And now we have our Emmanuel, our Jesus, who said, lo, I will be with you always, even until the end. So we're in our wilderness, my friend. God has formed us. He has planned for us to be on this journey, but he has not left us alone. He didn't in the, in the original wilderness wanderings, and he didn't in ours as well. What great hope we have for God is with us. He's formed us. We are his, and this is all for his glory. What a text tonight. Thank you, Crockpot. Thank you, Professor D. This has been Masterclass Theology. As always, I am Big Rev. And I'm Professor D. And I'm Crockpot. We continue next week with the majestic, wonderful Isaiah 53. Have a good night and God bless. Amen. See ya. This has been Masterclass Theology. I pray you've been challenged and encouraged during today's episode, and I hope you'll continue to join us as we journey through the Bible. God bless.